The Affendel reports back, prison guard shortages and the power of television during the Queen's funeral. One News Inside Parliament. Kia ora and welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's a regular catch-up about the political stories we've been covering here on One News. I'm Benedict Collins. And I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Jessica Much Mackay. And it's been a while since we've uh, done a podcast and we've got a whole heap to talk about. So let's kick it off with pits and our peaks. Jess. I think one of the really interesting things that we talked about this week, we've had, we have a um, acting Prime Minister at the moment, Grant Robertson, and we talked to him at... at quite a lot of length on Tuesday and one of the things that he brought up is just the way that this next election campaign is going to change with increased security risks for ministers and for uh, the Prime Minister in particular and how that whole world of uh, going to a mall and doing the mall walkabouts which they did amidst the Jacinda mania era now will have to change because I have to say on the ground at the time it felt pretty full on and pretty... Uh, swarms and large groups of people. It didn't feel particularly controlled and he just thinks that in the current climate that's just not going to fly anymore. So it could be a very different looking campaign next time round. And, and that's interesting too, right, because that was kind of Jacinda Ardern's strong point at the last um, election campaign. You know, you go out with her into those malls and she'd just get absolutely swarmed. Um, or should go to the, you know, um, Otara markets on, on a Saturday morning, just massive crowds around her. And it's something national could never, ever replicate. Um, you know, there's the um, lonesome walk down Ponsonby Road, uh, you know, as the opposite to that for um, Judith Collins. But it was it's really her strong point, and visually it's so powerful seeing someone being you know, a political leader being surrounded by, you know, crowds of adoring fans. You don't think um, we'll so see that, we'll, that? I still think we'll see that, though. Do you think? Yeah, I definitely think we'll see that. I think this is, you know, at the end of the day, this is Aotearoa, New Zealand. You know, we have an expectation as a society that you can get up and close and personal with MPs. I mean, I, I know that Grant Robertson has raised the issues, um, you know, that he did around um, feeling um, a greater need for security. But I think at the end of the day, um, when these politicians are out needing to get those votes, they'll do anything they can, which includes those massive walkabouts, which includes those massive um, photo opportunities. I just think, if anything, we may see increased police presence, but I don't think that there'll be kind of any major difference in that face-to-face it, ability. And another point I think you'd raise is, look, we're still pr- probably a year out, right? Um, I, I think the government will be hoping, you know, with COVID restrictions long gone, you know, people who have had a whole summer, oh, hope some of that anger has kind of um, dissipated among the, you know, anti-vax crowd I and stuff like that and that people will have moved on, you know, and that, you know, there are fewer angry, outraged people out there. I do think things will change a little bit. I think that close-up proximity stuff with the Prime Minister might have to change. That's just my view. I just, I'm not sure if it's tenable from a, um, I mean, I think it's fine if you're, if you're doing like she was last election and super popular and came in with a majority, but I just, I just wonder if things have changed a little bit since then. But you might be right, so we'll have to and wait and see. That's probably going to be sort of my peak, or rather, interest. It's probably definitely a peak for a lot of people across the country. I think was the government's decisions around scrapping the traffic light system in the last couple of weeks. So we saw the government um, move us into 
the uh, era of having no traffic lights, having no sort of restrictions. Now you don't even need to wear a mask when you're sitting on the bus, on the aeroplane, when you're going out to the supermarket. Um, and so basically you only need to wear them when you're in a GP or, or a clinic or a pharmacy um, or a hospital mm. setting type thing. Mm. Um, and I think the government would have been very much aware that they needed to gain back some lost sort of popularity, some lost support amongst um, the public, not just those who, you know, really felt anti-mandate, that kind of vitriol um, towards the government, but even just your everyday kind of New Zealander, the bus drivers, the taxi drivers who had to wear, you know, the masks, you know, eight hours out of their working day. Um, and I think there was a, you know, with the cases being as low as they have been, the lowest in six months, um, and with, you know, the rest of the world, you know, you only need to look at Ardern over at the UN, over at the UK this week, where there is hardly anyone wearing masks, um, that, you know, there was a feeling amongst a lot of the public that, you know, we needed to kind of um, ease back on those restrictions. And I think the government's done themselves a political favour heading into summer, and Ardern made that very clear in her um, in her remarks um, when she made that announcement, that, you know, this would be the first summer that Kiwis didn't have to have anxiety about sort of needing to wear masks or perhaps falling back into an orange or a red traffic light setting. Yeah, interesting though, because eh? we've actually had a couple of fantastic summers, COVID-free summers the last couple of years. Yeah, but, but did- like last year in August, we went into lockdown. Our, our last nationwide lockdown was in August and the likes of Auckland only came out in December. Mm. So, you know, while while we were relatively free, it was still definitely in the back of Kiwis' minds. Now with these restrictions gone altogether, um, they'll definitely have that kind of eased summer yeah. vibe. And another interesting thing, I thought um, Chris Bishop was appointed as Nationals campaign chair for next year's um, election, uh, their MP out of the hut, taking over the over the reins there. Um, uh, you know, hard um, to see him not doing a better job than last times uh, than than last elections kind of um, campaign train wreck for national. I still can't. Every time I think about Chris Bishop in the election, though, all I can see is him standing there next to May Heron not realising that the camera was live on our election night coverage, <laughs> looking like he just wanted to dig a hole and, you know, and bury himself in the earth. He as was things so went, sad. As eh? things became an absolute train wreck and he, he lost his seat. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's all I can think of when I see that. But, um, Definitely, you know, with, with Chris, I think it's very interesting to have the pairing of Chris Bishop running Nationals campaign and Megan Woods running Labour's. They have two very different styles of politics, those two. So two very different campaigns is what I'm expecting. I don't know, um, you know, given the, the feeling towards Labour at the moment, if I would have gone for a Megan Woods. I, I kind of wondered if, if maybe, you know, because usually lately when we've seen the government put someone up against the likes of Chris Bishop, it's Chris Hipkins, who's able to bring a bit more mongrel, who's able to kind of say the things, you know, in a cutting way. Him and Grant Robertson are usually the go-to sort of he government guys. He doesn't have capacity, though. He doesn't, yeah, but, you know, next year when we're kicking into election, I mean, he can have a whole support team around him getting things underway, even Megan Woods in the background. But as the person who's going to be the mouthpiece um, in terms of campaign stuff, I don't know if I would have gone for Megan Woods. Well, I think campaign stuff, Megan Woods did it last time for Labour, right? And I think campaign stuff is normally behind the scenes, a lot of hard hard work rather than, you know, normally the people fronting the campaign. Yeah, are, are your prime ministers right? Yeah, but you're you're, you're still setting the, the tone in the narrative. There's a reason why they've picked Chris Bishop, and he and he is, you know, he's 
the other thing is he's always giving interviews and he's always putting the boot in. I just wonder if the government could have had someone in that same position who would be able to counter that. Yeah, um, Chris Bishop sort of um, is regarded probably, I think, as one of National's hardest working MPs as well, already with his portfolios, um, just furiously busy all the time. So um, also as a new dad, it'll be interesting to see, you know, like this incredible workload sort of coming on on him next year. So that'll, yeah, there'll be uh, I mean, something to watch. With, with like the easing of the, because he was the COVID-19 response spokesperson, eh? I mean, you know, I guess his workload would have eased a bit now with the kind of loosening of restrictions and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Another interesting what? thing that happened um, a little while ago, it didn't get much airtime, um, and that's because it happened the day after the Queen died. But James Shaw um, was re-elected as the Green Party leader. We did quite a few stories on him um, being ousted, but he, yeah, he... Um, on, a, on the Saturday morning, he had a uh, press conference at Parliament that I went along to, um, and, and he, he was saying basically uh, to the media there um, that the big lesson for him was that he he, um, he put his ousting down to um, not basically not being out there enough into the regions, meeting with Green Party members. He felt like they had been doing Zoom stuff like this. This was his version of events, um, but that didn't work for a long, lot of their members. He'd spent a lot of time in that time where he's you know, removed his leader, getting out there, having face-to-face conversations. He, he really put it down um, to basically him not having enough of a presence out there with Green Party members, and that's something he said he wants to rectify. What do you make of that? I think a lot of people have, you know, tried to say, look, what a waste of time. They didn't even, you know, put up another um, Mm -hmm. candidate against him. The members should be ashamed of themselves. I think that's the wrong take. I think the whole point of what they did was to hold James Shaw to account. And you could say that definitely happened. He got the wake-up call, the shake-up of his life. The kick-up the backside, And he got the kick-up the backside that those members wanted. So I think they did achieve what they set out to do, which was to say, hey, 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 do not forget, you know, some of the core values, some of the core expectations that your members have of you. And he's, he's had to acknowledge that publicly. I do yeah. feel like it was such a messy, like I take your point, but I do think it was such a messy way to um, go, like such a public way to go about it. Like I do feel like, you know, perhaps he wasn't getting the messages properly behind the scenes, but it just did feel like a very much airing of dirty laundry, you know what I mean? Yeah, Better he- to be from the membership though than the caucus members themselves, like, you know, as opposed to the um, messy leadership you know, coups that we've seen from the likes of National, which have been driven by the the MPs, um, which is like way more of a deep cut than having members say, hey, 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 you know, we just need you to be aware of what, what we're feeling here. And, and it didn't kind of result in him losing his job altogether. It was a wake-up call. So it wasn't as messy as like the total bloodshed of the rolling of, you know, Simon Bridges, Todd Muller, Judith Collins. Mm. Yeah, he also said in that um, media conference that the clear message, not only did they want to see more of him, you know, face to face out there, but he said the, and it was, he said it was the same message everywhere he went, and that was that Green Party members are totally frustrated with the lack of pace moving on climate change issues. Um, And he said that was like everywhere he went, that's all everyone told him. Um, you know, we, they just feel that they are not moving fast enough on that issue. And I, and I, th- I asked him there, I said, well, you know, were there other things that they're worried about too? You know, like 
we regularly see um, the Greens taking aim at the government over you know social issues, punishing beneficiaries, that sort of thing. And he said, no, no, it really was just a, a real focus on on climate change and then wanting to do more and move faster. Um, any other interesting? Um, one points? other point I wanted to make. Um, this week we saw uh, Nanaya Mahuta, uh, the uh, Public Service Commission, is looking into um, the contracts awarded to her husband and, and other family members, um, as well as a wider look at the rest of the public service. And it's something that ended up being prompted because she said to Chris Hipkins, I'm keen to for this to be sorted. She said that the you know, the online stories and allegations, she wants it sorted. Um, and she did say that there were quite a few inconsistencies with the different agencies and departments that she was dealing with. Um, and so they're going to have a look into that. So that'll be really interesting to see what that comes up with. And it's a balancing act because it is little old New Zealand and we're all, you know, there are, throughout political history there have always been um, you know, siblings or husbands or whatever it is. Uh, but I do think that this has raised questions and it'll be interesting to see how um, the process is rectified from here. What I find interesting is that if, if it was a good few weeks ago now, Jacinda Ardern said at Postcab that she'd been asking questions um, about what had been going on here. And from Nanaya Mahuta's end, you know, she, she keeps declaring conflicts of interest whenever they come up, make sure that's all well known. <clears throat> but then you've got these government departments awarding contracts without putting them out for, for tender, right? Which I think is Simeon Brown's, is what he is really concerned about here. Um, and then despite the Prime Minister sort of saying she had concern, or, you know, really wanted to make sure everything was above board and had been looking into it quite a few weeks ago, it's only recently that Chris Hipkins... Um, and it sounds like after Simeon Brown had written to the Public Service Commissioner, Chris Hipkins has also done so after Nanaya contacted him. I'm interested that they didn't move on this earlier, given you know the PM had been asking questions about it a while ago. It too. was the 29th of August that um, National first put in their first letter, so it was last month, several And when weeks was Hipkins? Ago, this week. Right. Yep, after Nanaya Mahuta wrote to him saying, let's get this sorted. Yeah. He then wrote to them, and that's when this went broader than just those four agencies. So, mm. yeah, interesting topic. Yeah. All right, another interesting little thing that happened a while ago, since we haven't podcasted, um, <clears throat> end of August, but Dr Shane Resi came to me a little while ago and alerted me to <clears throat> a letter that had been sent um, to MPs out in, in the South Auckland area. And it was a local um, health official, Gary Jackson, um, who worked at, I think then it was County's um, uh, Monaco um, District Health Board. He'd written a letter out to MPs urging them to back Chloe Swarbrick's um, members bill that was recently drawn from the um, ballot that would ban alcohol sponsorship in um, broadcast sports and would also make it um, harder uh, or easier for elected officials to, to keep a lid on um, alcohol outlets as well, it'll give them more powers. Um, so anyway, this public health official wrote to all these MPs, and then a few days later wrote, a, and he wrote this big impassioned letter um, about all the reasons why they should be supporting Chloe Swarbrick's bill. A few days later, he sent another email out to all these MPs saying, oh, that letter is retracted. So we um, found out what went on. <coughs> 
and um, it turns out Andrew Little had got involved, the minister of um, the health minister. And uh, I stopped him on the bridge and said, hey, what's going on with this letter and why was it retracted? And uh, Andrew Little told me um, that it was an outrageous breach or an egregious breach of public service standards and that, that it wasn't, uh, you know, the political neutrality required. And he tore this um, poor public health official's head off, basically. Um, and, yeah, and was saying it was completely inappropriate. I then got contacted by people that pointed out that the new Health New Zealand chair um, had also um, been backing Chloe's um, bill, and uh, that is Rob Campbell. He'd given a speech to uh, CEOs in Taranaki, urging them to um, back this bill that would um, basically push back against uh, the alcohol industry. And yet, when we hit Andrew Little up about that, he said he had spoken to Rob Campbell about his comments, but said that they were appropriate. Um, so he seems to be, uh, well, he insisted that he treated both issues um, the same. He, he appears to have um, torn the head off the little fella and let his um, chairman of Health New Zealand, uh, you know, sort of throw the principles of public neutrality away. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. Should we talk about um, Sam Uffendale now? We had the um, report from Maria Jew back and they didn't have enough evidence to uh, basically be able to proceed forward and she found from what we've been told by National that um, there was nothing to stop him from being a member of Parliament. There were only three people who got to see that full report, um, Sam Uffendale himself, uh, Sylvia Wood and uh, Christopher Luxon. So just interesting that it wasn't, they didn't release an executive summary, we weren't able to see that for ourselves. Um, Interesting that this is where they landed. So what were your thoughts guys? Um <clears throat> well it doesn't it doesn't um speak of uh transparency openness does it that uh, only the three national party um you know the the leader the president and the guy at the center of the allegation were the ones to see the full report i mean um the victim or the alleged victim um didn't see it either uh, that just that just I mean, I think everyone would be bewildered that that wasn't, um, you know, afforded to that person. Uh, and the fact that we're now having to take the word of the National Party without even receiving an executive summary um, when comparing to the Labour summer camp report or the Mecca Whaiteri, um staff, uh, uh, was it an assault allegation? It's been so long, I can't remember. But I think that they released an executive summary and the terms of reference for those things and yet for National not to release any of that I think is just not good enough. And what's really interesting is that National kept trying to push back, being like, look, we trust Maria Jew and she's a King's Counsel. It wasn't about that. It's just that National sets the parameters of her investigation. We didn't know the terms of reference and we didn't get the executive summary. So it's not the public questioning her, it's questioning what she was asked to look into. And I think that's what... And he said, oh, look, we have to be confidential because that's what we agreed. No one wants to reveal the names of people who don't want to be revealed. But there are ways of redacting names and and identifying parts of it. That's just basics. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just a load of bollocks that they haven't actually released an executive summary. I think it's fascinating too just how much political energy Christopher Luxon has had to put in to managing the fallout of this, you know, once, once again... A National Party candidate who's 
well, MP, you know, he's brought um, the party into disrepute pretty much as f- soon as he put his, um, you know, foot in the door. Yeah, it's a lot of political capital for a for a backbench MP. It's been six weeks. That's that's a really long time, and I wonder. You know, I think he feels like he has handled it in best and most fair way. But whether it was the best way politically, I, I guess time will tell. I was sitting up in the house yesterday um, watching Question Time and Sam Uffendale was sitting uh, up the back with a very long face, looking um, yeah, very downtrodden. I'm not sure if I've seen him look happy since he's been at Parliament. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. I, I mean, have you? I, think, I do think, though, that he um, still has some potential um, to grow and be, be quite a strong um, member of the National Party caucus um, because I think that anyone who can handle the the scrutiny um, as he has as a new MP, like it's tough for a sitting minister to front the media day in, day out as he did during those first sort of two weeks when this all blew up um, and then to kind of sit tight for another few weeks and then to kind of front the the end result of this report in the way that he has without crumbling, without melting completely um, and buckling to the pressure. I think for a very new MP that shows promise. So, And I think, you know, he was quite impressive out on the campaign trail. Um, so I do, I mean, I do expect that maybe there is some life yet in him. And he d- and you- and he's still hungry for it, you know. He still wants it. I think a lot of people would say, actually, I'll just go back to my um, finance job. Thanks, I'm I'm done. You guys can have your political position. And he he hasn't. He said, I still want to do this. Yep, the last six weeks have been really tough, but I want to make a difference. And and let's see, he's got a year to get reselected. Yeah, and we talked earlier about uh, COVID restrictions um, being removed and the, the government sort of moving on um, uh, from COVID-19, but not when it comes to our prisons, Mikey. Ah, yes. Very interesting story, I think, this one. Um, so, you know, unbeknownst to me um, and to a lot of people, I think, um, most of our, our prison population aren't allowed um, face-to-face visits. It's something that sort of, uh, you know, I sort of chucked in an OIA request about a couple of things to do with our prisons um, and and just wanting to know like the the visiting um, rates since COVID and then realising that actually visits haven't been taking place for the good part of a year uh, and that um, 65% two thirds of our prison population are being impacted and was kind of like what is that is that really the case because I think unless you know someone who's in prison um, then you don't really know what's what's going on there and we haven't really seen many stories you know, in the media covering the fact that these face-to-face visits haven't been happening. And then so you look at the, the reason why and, and, and corrections, you know, put up the, the issue of COVID-19. Yep, sure, you know, everyone can understand that. But, you know, after sort of the new year, apart from the Omicron outbreak, restrictions haven't been as tight around the country, you know, compared to our last lockdown back in August. So the fact that, you know, they'd been absolutely water sealed tight at our prisons sort of raised eyebrows. And then now that we've dropped, you know, mask restrictions and we don't even have a traffic light system anymore, it beggars belief that, you know, people in prison can't see their children, can't see their partners, um, their mothers, their fathers, um, and that that's been now dragging on for a year. So the real 
real issue now with COVID-19 sort of on the back burner is actually the major staffing shortage at Corrections. And so Corrections informed us um, through our OIA that there's 1,600 job vacancies across the entire department. Just over 500 of those are prison officers themselves. And that is what is keeping families apart. And the Minister and the Corrections boffs have both said, look, it's about safety. And I don't think anyone's disputing the need for safety. But the fact that that's impacting on the well-being of prisoners, you know, who will be having mental health impacts because of this, and their children, um, you know, that's, that's just something that requires urgency. And then, so the questions just simply needed to be asked, you know, are we, are we doing everything that we can be to recruit more prison officers? Are we doing everything that we can be to make sure that video, video calls are available and all these sorts of things? And what are the implications of these things? So that it's at least on the radar, because I think the most concerning thing to me is that I haven't it hasn't been on the radar. No one's been talking about it. No one's, because we just largely didn't know about it. I think one of the reasons that it matters to everyday New Zealanders as well is because, yeah, the, the people who are in prison, um, you, you, you do a crime and there are consequences to that. But for the kids, they didn't do anything wrong. And to be able to see their parents or their grandparents or their uh, whatever, it, you know, their family members, that's so important, and and I think that that's why it matters to everyday New Zealanders out there. And the other thing is is that corrections, you know, the Justice Department, everyone who's involved in the rehabilitation of prisoners, they're always saying, you know, a big part of it is to strengthen and, and cultivate the relationships with um, their whānau and the relationships with their communities. How can you do that when you can't even see them face-to-face? You know, so it's it's about rehabilitation being impacted, and and sooner or later these prisoners they will get out and they will be coming back into society. And if they don't have those kind of familial bonds or their kind of societal bonds because they've been shut literally in in the prison twenty you know you know the the whole time without any kind of outside face to face visits, then that is concerning. And then we also spoke to a lawyer yesterday who just went through the raft of challenges from a legal perspective and not being able to adequately prepare clients for trial for their defence because they can't actually meet them face-to-face. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah, it was a really good yarn and one I think we'll keep going with too. Um, The Queen was obviously a really massive thing. Um, I got woken up at 5.30am on the Friday morning and we were, I was on air at 6 and I think did 12 hours of live TV and from a journalist's point of view, Gosh, it was interesting. Um, you know, really sad for the family and um, some big changes. But in in politics, a big moment. We saw um, some really interesting ceremonial things take place at the weekend. Um, we've just seen these epic scenes. I, I, you know, we watched this live event unfold from sitting at home in New Zealand. And regardless of what people think of the monarch this is such a huge historic event and um a really powerful one and we were all part of reporting on that and that was that was really amazing 
Yeah, I think one of the um, it was. I mean, it's special to be you know a, a part of it. I think for every every person, um, whether you were just simply watching at home, whether you were part of the reporting, whether you were doing other things. I think you know it's a moment in history, global history, um, and and it's and it was a spectacle. And I think one of the other cool things was just from a work perspective, seeing the whole machinery swing into place and that kind of two days of life live rolling coverage um, that, you know, all of the major TV stations were doing was just an impressive thing to watch. You know, you can be in the television game for so many years, but you never quite see anything on that scale to that extent. And it really just kind of brought home the power of television as well. You know, in in an age where we talk about sort of, you know, um, people switching off the screen and, and that sort of thing. Uh-uh, like the power of television shone through um, at, at, during this whole sort of moment and everyone was glued to their screens, just soaking up every little bit. And um, yeah, it was just, it was quite a, quite a cool thing to be a part of. Yeah. Hey, Benedict. I was really, really, really happy last night with, um, as we got back into sort of normal service resumed, um, our bulletin full of bulletin full of hard news stories. God, it was refreshing. Um, anyway, I think we can leave things there. Oh no, we still got more to cover. Also, what about the Republic? We got. Oh my God, I can't believe you're going to give the Queen two minutes. We'll get. We'll, we'll, me and you will just talk for two okay. more minutes, Benedict, and you can just. Okay, let's talk about the Republic. Just a moment, and I think you're so right. We haven't right. even spoken about the re- remarkable reuniting of of the awesome foursome. Yeah, and. <laughs> And Princess Charlotte. <laughs> and again. the corgis. Yeah, and the, like just all of it was, I think, really powerful. And I think you want to see it. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, sitting in New Zealand, watching at 11 o'clock at night, you felt like you were part of something that was taking place in the middle of the day in London on the other side of the world. And to see all those global leaders even, you know, yeah. show up. And actually it was very cool to see um, Harry and, and William and Kate and Megan all emerge from the, the vehicles to, to kind of meet and greet with the public together mm. um, as a united front, you know. And, um, and to see our Prime Minister there and Governor-General and... Yeah, of- I just think even from just this is like a normal human Fano perspective... To see that, you know, in times of grief, everybody comes together and you just got to get on with it. I think what's do what you got to do. Totally. And we've been preparing, um, you know, thinking about what would happen if the Queen dies since I was your correspondent. It's been, um, I don't know, what is it now? Five years, six years. You know, like I think the BBC have been planning for it for a long time, all of the other networks. You you know, it's not a it's not something you want to entertain, but it's something that we knew it would be such a big event, we have to be prepared for it. So. And, and, like, obviously with now, you know, the funeral uh, being over and, you know, the discussion will now turn to the issue of becoming a republic and yeah. whether that's something that New Zealanders want. I think it was very interesting from a Māori perspective to see so many of our, our Māori leaders sort of say, now's not the time um, during the morning period, now's not the time to kind of dig up, you know, uh, the grievances or the mamai or any kind of talk about, you know, what 
a future New Zealand Aotearoa would look like. Uh, you know, I really, I really appreciated the respect that everyone showed that moment. And that I think, dignity. like, yeah, just as, as Māori, you know, you can have your disagreements about and your own thoughts about, you know, where things should lie. But I think everyone knows that tikanga first and foremost is that you, you know, pay respects to the person who has passed on. You allow the whānau, pani, to have that grieving time. And then you talk, and people, you know, some people say, oh, look, well, the place of the marae was, you know, the place to have those tough conversations. And I'd just like to remind people that uh, Twitter is not the marae, e huama. <laughs> Twitter Quote, is not the marae. Unquote. And I think, you know, we will all do that on Monday for that one-off public holiday. Um, Benedict hasn't said anything for the last three minutes, so should we let him read yes. the outro? Um, good chat, Mikey. Yeah. No. One thing that really got on your nerves, so eh? Um, Jacinda Ardern catching that flight over to the, um, with Justin Trudeau. Oh yeah, Cap- I mean the reason it got on my nerves though is because I can't l- believe we don't have a plane. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like the fact that our Air Force, the fact that we haven't brought a plane so that we can do flights, not just for VIPs visits, but for um, international aid, for um, you know things like this where it's very important. I just... I can't believe we haven't given our Air Force a I proper think, plane. I think it's cool that our Prime Minister like, hitchhikes no, around the world. No, it's not, Benedict. We are a developed Wasn't country. Wasn't she on the plane with Sandra Oh as well? Yeah. And yeah. The, from Grey's call, Anatomy? We need call, a plane. They were cool photos as yeah. well, right? But I we just need a plane. And I mean, they, so whose plane was that? Because those seats looked like a Canadian plane. Oh, well, plane. can I just say that their decor on their plane looked a bit shabby. So. Yeah, so we could have a proper, <laughs> like, we just need a plane. Like, it's just I, my, this argument, I don't f- even feel like there's that much of a debate. I'm going to do a story on it next week, actually. Thanks, Benedict. You've, Boom. Yeah. Reignited the fire. Yeah. Excellent. All right. That was One News Inside Parliament, our regular catch-up about the political stories we've been covering. We're on and about to cover. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's available most weeks on One News Online. And you can check us out on your favourite podcasting app. Ciao. Ciao.